0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the pleasure of speaking again with Dr. John Coiney, who is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Michigan State University. We'll be speaking on a very interesting new OUP publication, Shared Devotion, Shared Food. John, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, the subtitle of your book is Equality in the, the Bhakti Caste Question in Western India. Obviously, an important and fascinating, uh, potentially delicate issue that you're researching. How did you get drawn into this field of research?
0: Well, um, not to go back too far, but uh, I'm was in college and I signed up for a program to go and study in India. It was an ACM, American Colleges in the Midwest program. And that brought me to Pune, started me on Marathi. Um, But also really important uh, to that was, uh, it was co-founded by Eleanor Zelliot. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her work or if some of your listeners are, but uh, she was the first major scholar, a pioneering scholar of Dr. Ambedkar and uh, his legacy. And in some of her writings, she also referred to the Marathi Bhakti saints. And so I had a lot of conversations with her, extended contact. So that combination of Marathi Bhakti and the place of Dalits and the Dalit assertion movements was crucial. That sort of got me started. Um, In my dissertation, I was drawn to the figure of Eknath. He was a 16th century Brahmin saint poet. And he was known especially, at least the things that drew me to me. Uh, drew me to him were that he had a lot of stories about him interacting respectfully and compassionately with Dalits. And so that's what I thought um, would be interesting to study the dissertation. I did that, Uh, literally chased down anything I could find about these stories, uh, published documents, um, published manuscripts, unpublished manuscripts, went to a lot of archives um, found an Urdu biography of him in the late 1930s that had been kind of forgotten about. Uh, so I incorporated that. Some 19th and 20th century Marathi scholarship on him and how he came to be understood in different ways. And then some Marathi plays and films, as well as some ethnography in Python and as part of the pilgrimage of the that the, the large Bhakti group in Western India, the Warkari the Sampradai, I went on pilgrimage with uh, his ancestors and the palanquin that carried uh, eknath's sandals from Paitan to Pandarpur. So that um, was the source or the background information about uh, about Aiknath that I was looking for. When it came time to write the book, though, I understood that I wanted to Talk about something larger, and not just to the audience who might be interested in 16th century saint poets in Western India. And so, I was sort of thinking about what a larger context would be. It was convenient that I had a postdoc at the time at the Center for Modern Indian Studies at the University of Göttingen, and there were a lot of uh, people doing social scientific research there, and that left a very strong impression on me. It was very helpful in helping to uh, reframe a lot of the questions that I had and. Um, sort of find out about some other conversations that were going on uh, around uh, outside the humanities. I was still, though, kind of hesitant to come back to that question that drew me to Eich in the first place. Uh, Did bhakti traditions promote social equality? Just because it was so big and I didn't think I would be able to do it justice. Um, And eventually what I ended up doing was orienting the book around how do we even ask the question. And that kind of um, was a bit of a breakthrough. I was able to, to get at trying to figure out what was, we needed in the, in the background, what sort of things allowed the question to make sense before we could really start to, to answer the question. And uh, yeah, that eventually became part one of the book was um, what I think we need to have in, in our minds, what sort of background is useful to contextualize the question of how bhakti traditions relate to caste. So um, I then was looking at how it was framed in uh, the bhakti caste question was framed in modern terms in terms of social equality. Uh, these are terms that uh, most scholars take uh, for granted. They're sort of in our minds. it's sort of natural. Um, these are also the terms that Dr. Ambedkar used when he critiqued uh, bhakti traditions, as saying that they were not promoting social equality, they were only promoting spiritual equality. And so that, was um, foundational for a modern perspective on the bhakti caste question, but then I also tried to move beyond those modern lenses to try to understand how the bhakti traditions in Western India perceive the bhakti caste question on their own terms. And to get at that, I found food and stories about food stories to, uh, f- stories about food to be especially helpful. Um, just because they helped bring up uh, these clash of value systems and things. So that's a
1: yeah, sort of summary. There's um, a lot of interesting themes that we'll we'll dive into. And what you've just said, I mentioned in passing that Pune holds a special place in my heart. I ended up doing some advanced Sanskrit training there at uh, the uh, AIS, the American Institute of Indian Studies. Um, it's also the city of Ganapati, so who, who can who who not like Pune? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, there's just so many threads there that you've, you've preempted a couple of my questions and you've touched on them. Um, tell us a bit more about um, the framing of the question, uh, why that's problematic, how exactly you frame it in your book.
0: So to my mind, the idea of social equality, which I found scholars in the 20th century just sort of referring to as if it were this just natural thing, that we all knew what it was and we didn't really have to unpack it, it was just simply a reference point. I, At least the way that I approach it, I, I look at it as a concept that's really come from political discourse, especially in uh, the arrival the emergence of Western nation states in relation to legal systems and gradually started to impact a number of other sectors of society. And at least in terms of Marathi discourse, the idea of equality, I think comes in most strongly thinking in terms of social equality in the 19th century. And one of my chapters uh, looks at uh, Marathi literature as it was published in the 19th century, how terms like pakti and um, a concern about the social kind of came into that, how they were framed. And once once i identified the social equality as in a kind of a modern term when we're thinking about the bhakti caste question i was able to then uh, kind of get beyond that or ask well what what part of the problem that i really had with the question and part of the uh, the thing that was making me pause at even taking on the project was that it felt like social equality wasn't the term wasn't there in the bhakti literature before modern times. And so to use that term to try to understand pre-modern traditions just did not seem to be the most uh, fruitful way of going about it. So identifying it as a modern term and then saying, well, what was there before, and what got translated into social equality, that uh, allowed me to to move forward with the project.
1: You know, it strikes me again and again, um that in my view the most um, effective studies and the most effective scholars of um, uh, religions of India or religions in South Asia um, the work is such that <laughs> their theories and categories and methods are altered by virtue of the, the data right absolutely and the, it's 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 next to well in my view that, that if that's not the case then, you're not paying proper attention to the data Mm -hmm. because it's very different from from so much of um, the Western academic lens of viewing. Uh, But of course, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So there needs to be a way to expand our academic discourse by virtue of what we're coming across. So you dispense with this idea of um, 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 social equality as a universal or something to be assumed. And then you focus on...
0: So I really like the way that you put that about balancing uh, reliance on Western theoretical um, sort of frameworks and lenses. And to to my understanding, uh, the way that I perceive that is that's simply a way of talking to Western academics or academics who are participating in Western discourse. Um, So we talk in terms of those theories. It, It allows us to communicate. But hopefully then the materials that we're working with also Challenge those uh, frameworks and, and allow us to see that people were operating, um, you know, in very nuanced, sophisticated ways, without reference to, you know, Derrida or Bourdieu or you know Foucault or somebody like that. So, yeah, that and that really was something I tried to do in the book. Was tried to be very respectful of the Marathi materials and anticipate that there was a sophistication. To how Marathi authors were writing that might not come across in English translation and might not even be fully represented in bhakti poetry because it's meant to go out to a very wide audience, but that sophistication is there. And so the thing about uh, food was that um, by looking at stories about food, to my mind, that allowed me to get at what people were thinking and how they were framing stories and how they were perceiving tensions on their own terms without referring to then modern Western lenses. And by doing that, then I think we could reframe the bhakti caste question in the terms that they used because that would be much more integral to how they perceived the world. So that that for me is essential to the project.
1: Yeah, there's um, um, it's it's easy for many to fall into the trap that you know we are at the apex of our species' ability to think mm-hmm. and 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 understand reality, and you know um, it, whether it's by virtue of location with on the globe, whether it's by virtue of you know this juncture in history, it's it's really an illusion, because. Um, uh, intellectual um, aesthetic uh, spiritual acumen brilliance is everywhere it's a question of just being very conscious of the lens you're using even as a a modern western academic or maybe especially as a modern western academic Um, so that's really cool so the the audience uh, the audience is so mixed it's intriguing I mean we have our specialist colleagues listening um, we have, uh, studies, learners, listening folks, uh, from Indian descent who are interested in these traditions, uh, many a Westerner who are interested in all things in Dick, um, and, and, you know, everything in between. And so say a word about. Uh, just generally maybe go back to where you would, would teach maybe uh, a world religions undergrad class, like food, what's the big deal about food? Why is food so important in this culture and why are you looking at food to understand any of this stuff?
0: Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate that question. And to be honest, food, it really wasn't until this project that I paid attention to food at all. And after I did start paying attention to it, then it would just, you know, lit up everywhere. We saw uh, how food was functioning in society. And so this was, to me, just sort of opening a door that might have been, you know, entirely open and obvious to other people. But, you know, for me, that was my own, uh, I guess, self-development. But food is, I would say that, so Mary Douglas uh, refers to it as a, a natural symbol as something that is universal that people then read a lot of meaning into in different ways and for me eating together so more than just food but eating together is something that all cultures participate in um, if for no other reason than they have to conserve energy and labor and it's a lot easier to serve a larger group of people and eat together than it is for a whole bunch of individuals to eat alone so we find that happening in a lot of cultures yet Uh, Around foods, there are lots of concerns about um, hygiene, ritual purity, social hierarchy, and there's so many different values that come in and give structure to what food means and how it's handled. And that's why I think it's such a rich place to analyze society and culture, because we're going to then see all of those structures coming in and inflecting how people interact with that food, including when people have social conflicts, because food can then very easily become a flashpoint of controversy, where people aren't abiding by the pre-set rules that one group wants to use for monitoring food. Or people want to contest joining the meal when they were previously excluded, or um, sending some people out from the meal who would have been normally included, or... The contesting, you know, where one sits at the table, or you know, who gets to eat first, or what food we do get to eat and what we can't eat—all of this becomes a flashpoint for, or maybe an index or a window into social tensions. And so that's why I think looking at food can be very, very rich.
1: So um, you touched on it at the outset, mm-hmm. but uh, let's dive into this a little bit more clearly. What is your data for this book? What are you looking at to make sense of, of, of so the, of these
0: themes? The data to begin with was stories about Eknat. And so these were coming from Marathi manuscripts, both published and unpublished, and then plays about uh, about Eknats in the 19th and 20th centuries, very end of the 19th century and 20th centuries, and some films about Eknat. And all of this then was tracing basically uh, two stories. This is is especially in part two of the book, just tracing two stories about Eknat, Dalits, and food, and some controversial things that happened there, and how these stories change over time. And the ways that we, if we look closely at the changing renditions, we can see how they're instable, uh, how people try to nuance reading in one way or another, but also preserve something of an ambiguity. But to go back to your question, then the data set at the outset is mainly these stories about knots and how they get transmitted. And then there's a, a number of different extra, I would say, bases of background knowledge that I think are helpful to have, such as the, the history of the concept of social equality and um, a history or understanding of how Marathi literary history got published and ideas that came in the 19th century Marathi publications and sort of created a new kind of discourse, maybe even a new public for talking about bhakti and what one expects to find there, what it's good for, what uh, people try to use it for. So that's another piece. I brought in some food anthropology to try to understand the use of food more richly. And then I also brought in... um, you yeah, know, some transmedial narratology that wasn't, I guess, so much data as more as method. Um, but then, yeah, the I was basically anything that was going to help me understand the idea of equality and the bhakti-cast question. I just kind of, I, I brought it in if that's where it seemed that the question needed to go.
1: I'd like to circle back briefly on this idea of food and you, you talk about Mary Douglas's work and you talk about the, um, the, the obvious significance of food to to various social operations um could you tell us uh broadly but also more specifically within within the indic context um like you have a um, couple of subsections on the the the, the, the gastro semantics of food in in this context say more about that from more of a general audience so I touched
0: on some ideas from food anthropologists in the West, but the one that was most valuable for me, especially studying India, was R.S. Kare, uh, who's an anthropologist at the University of Virginia, has done work on both the Brahmins and Dalits in Lucknow, and has just generally written quite a lot about food, uh, especially in the context. And he uh, pointed out two terms that I found especially useful. One was uh, Hindu gastrosemantics. The different paradigms that Hindus have used for understanding food and how it should be regulated and how it should be understood. That's Hindu gastro semantics. And then semantic density, the fact that food can mean multiple things at the same time. And so when people interact with it, they're interacting with uh, different levels of meaning. And uh, it sort of points out the enhanced richness of. One's behavior around food and what it does to a person on emotional, intellectual, and uh, physical and social levels. So, I look at uh, in uh, one of the chapters. I look at different paradigms that Hindus have had over the course of history for understanding food, um, going back to the Vedas and looking at uh, anna or food as a sort of cosmic life force that moves between the earth and the heavens. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at uh, shraddha and uh, rituals for feeding the ancestors that comes in much later in icknot stories as well to stories about uh, the from the puranas of different kinds of ethical dilemmas that people get into with food dharma sutras and dharma shastras uh, highly regulating uh, especially brahman men's interaction with food and who they can eat with who they can accept food from and the regulation of uchishta or leftover food, that became very central in, in bhakti uh, literature, at least Marathi bhakti literature. So there were all of these things that were going on. And when it came then to reading the stories about eknats, we be, were able to see these different paradigms of meanings all operative, or at least many of them operative. And that being actually part of the crux for why people were coming into conflict. And uh, interpreting food differently because food carried multiple meanings at the same time. And some people were favoring some meanings, which were mutually exclusive of other meanings, especially when it came to the issue of caste and regulating food.
1: So um, maybe you can share a bit more about that from the book. Um, How do you um, yeah, share share some of these differences of opinions on food with respect to your research
0: inquiry? So, um, going back to the stories about Aichnots, the the two stories that I really trace, and I chose two stories just because... The book has to be of a certain size. It can't kind of sprawl on forever. But the two stories that I found most vivid were a story about Iknath preparing a Shraddha ritual uh, to honor his ancestors. And at the Shraddha ritual, he was uh, inviting a group of Brahmins from the community who were going to be essential to doing the ritual and then also going to serve as the proxies for the ancestors in eating this meal so that the ancestors would get fed. Eknath invites them. They go off to the river to have a purifying bath. And while they're gone, some interlopers arrive. And different renditions of the story have the interlopers either as a group of Dalits or as uh, three Muslim mendicants who are actually uh, the Murti in disguise. But in any case, Eknath serves them. The Brahmins come back later, are outraged that their food is gone and refuse to eat another meal. And there's different renditions have uh, different ways of framing this. But they basically, it comes down to the Brahmins refuse to do the ritual. They say the ancestors aren't going to be satisfied um, unless they just come and eat the food themselves, which then they miraculously do. Um, These are the deceased ancestors. They show up, they eat the meal, and then the Brahmins are left chastised. So that's one of the, the stories. And Another of the stories is the, uh, I call it the double vision story, where Eknath is invited by a Dalit man to eat a meal at the the home of he and his wife. And obviously, everybody knows that a Brahmin like Eknath is not expected to be and in fact is forbidden from eating with a Dalit man like this. But Eichnath accepts. The Brahmins in the community are upset. They go and try to catch him in the act, and they do see him sit down at the Dalit man's house and eat the meal. But then some other Brahmins see him somewhere else, uh, actually at Eichnath's own home, at the same time. So basically, Eichnath appears in two places at the same time, and they're frustrated. Uh, The Brahmins are frustrated in being able to say that Eichnath exclusively ate with uh, the Dalit couple. And then the, the hagiographers and the playwrights and the film producers, when they repeated these stories, found slightly different nuances, different takes to to, to put on them, such as how it appeared that achennots could eat in two places at the same time. And uh, one hagiographer left this complete mystery and said nothing more about it. Uh, One hagiographer said that Eknath had this yogic power that he could just project a second body of himself. And so he sat at home, but then projected a second body to go eat uh, the meal with the Dalit family. That was one interpretation. Most interpreters went with the idea that uh, God took on Eknath's form. And there was one Eknath who ate in one place and the other who ate in the other place, then God ate in the other place. And then they debated or they disagreed on whether the form of God was sitting at home or going out and eating with the Dalit family. And we could actually see in the nuances of these stories, it it makes a difference. Whether Eknath, as a Brahmin man, eats with the Dalit couple, or if God eats with the Dalit couple. Because that also resonates with some stories about Zokamera, a Dalit saint from the 14th century in Marathi tradition. And one of the major stories about him is that uh, he goes into the temple, uh, get, uh, is caught by some Brahmins. Or he's, he's brought into the temple by the god Vitoba. He gets caught by a group of Brahmins who banish him. God goes and visits him in exile and has a meal with him. And this uh, story gets repeated and I think even comes to resonate with some of Eknath's stories. So, yeah, food is involved in, in this. Uh, in the paradigm of like the Shraddha meal, what I uh, argue is that it comes down to interpreting food as Eknath understanding that food is a means of showing hospitality, which he as a Brahman is commanded to do by the Dharmashastras, uh, as well as God being in all people, uh, speaking of like Marathi terms of that the way that these uh, texts were phrased and framed so that it it legitimatized how Eknath interacted with Dalits. These were the terms that were used. he saw God in all people, and therefore he saw that God here the group of Dalits, was hungry and he needed to feed them food. Um, so that was one paradigm for food, whereas um, the larger expectation with that was that this was a shradha meal and the Shraddha meal was a ritual that had a certain uh, sequence to it. The food had to be served to Brahmins in order for the ritual to go it's the path that it was supposed to go. And this food couldn't go to two destinations at the same time. It was a matter of choosing which paradigm one was going to operate in. And the richness of the hagiographical story was that a miracle ends up, the the Aiknot's ancestors coming and eating the meal, that basically allows both frames of meaning for food to be operative at the same time. Aiknot can show hospitality. It accomplishes what he's trying to do. It allows his ancestors to be fed, but also it in a way fulfills the expectation of the rituals. And then in some renditions of the story, the Brahmins also then uh, say that Eknath has to go under undergo purification rituals, which he does. So there is this very complicated way in which bhakti is interacting with caste and the hagiographers are weighing in with their own kind of opinions while not completely opting for one side or the other.
1: Well, they, it seems that they preserve the tension.
0: Oh, absolutely, uh, yes.
1: Yeah, there's no, uh, you so you can't, do you cut off your right hand or your left hand, right? You sort of have to. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. half of each. Who knows? <laughs> a couple fingers here, a couple fingers there. Um, well, they—they uh,
0: they, they very well may not have been able to uh, think in terms of caste and uh, bhakti being two separate things. That's—and uh, this is, I think, probably part of the richness of the tradition and the contours of their intellectual landscape.
1: And this is why I feel it's so rich that you opted to go the route you did, which was, um, which was. Um, uh, derive insight about social relations um, through food because of how uh, inextricable the two are from each other in this context. And sort of, this is uh, for those listening, this is what I mean in terms of um, when we study um, religions of South Asia, it, we can't assume the same mentality as before. Encountering the data, and that data will, more often than not, point us to how to more fruitfully alter our lens or our approach. Um, so fascinating stories. Uh, so what? What do we make of them? What do we? Um, what? What? What can one conclude, if anything? Well, what, what do you end up uh, arguing or suggesting? So I guess I I end up in a couple places. I mean, throughout the book,
0: I try to be balanced and do justice both to Dr. Ambedkar's critical take on bhakti traditions. He, he says that they were not promoting social equality. And I think as an assessment of looking around uh, in India at bhakti traditions, especially in Maharashtra, by and large, I think that Ambedkar was probably right. I, once the idea of social equality was there as a standard, that was yeah did not end up looking like the the traditions that as they transpired. So I wanted to do justice to that, while also uh, being fair to uh, Bhakti traditions and trying to interpret them on their own grounds. Because if they weren't using the term social equality before the nineteenth century, it's a little bit. Um, uh, not terribly useful to me. anachronistic. Yeah. It's yeah. anachronistic. And I don't think we really understand the traditions well, if we just sort of import a term uh, that's they couldn't possibly have been uh, thinking in terms of. So I try to be doing uh, justice to both. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, I kind of come down on saying that the bhakti traditions, at least the Watakuri tradition that I was looking at, that Part of the reason that they keep bhakti and caste in tension and they maintain this tension in the stories as they repeat them really quite faithfully, the tension remains there, is that they were being strategically ambiguous and that this ambiguity was on an intellectual level, maybe not the most satisfying Especially to modern readers, we say, like, you know, for a lot of us, we say, well, you can choose one or the other. You don't have to have both. It's pretty obvious. But I don't, it wasn't obvious to, you know, somebody in the 18th century, much less the 16th century. At least I don't think it was. And they were probably, to my mind, maintaining the strategic ambiguity in order to talk to a large audience and, uh, interact with them so that people could find their own ways to interact with this tradition and feel that they had a place in the tradition, maybe even if they didn't fully understand it in the same way that their neighbors did, but they could still participate. And that was probably the bigger goal. The practical logic of inclusivity was the bigger goal than of finding an intellectual idea of social equality. That's one of the ideas, um, but what that then means in the 20th century, in the 21st century for bhakti traditions, especially now that social equality is in everybody's vocabulary, um, that's, a, that's a different question of uh, how they're going to choose to relate to that, uh, especially after Dr. Ambedkar and, and his legacy, there's now you know millions of, of Dalits who have converted to Buddhism and, and the bhakti traditions are not really even on the table for them. So um, there's that. And then in terms of commensality, I would hope that although I don't directly come out and say it so much in the book, I would hope that all readers um, are prompted to think about the networks of social relations that we're all um, enmeshed in, um, in which there's lots of our own sets of inequalities and inconsistencies and things that we wish were different, that um, you know, this isn't something that just Bhakti traditions faced. That's one of the aspects of critical commensality. We're all enmeshed in these, these relationships ourselves.
1: Oh, I think uh, everyone among us, uh, <laughs> irrespective of where we live or, or what tradition we're part of, have a story or two or 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 or, or twenty about. Mm-hmm. Uh, being invited or not invited to a certain table, or uh, being pleasantly surprised that you got to dine with so and so, or you know, high school cafeteria. You know, <laughs> where, where, where do you eat? <laughs> Whom do you meet? Um, yeah, so obviously there are there are implications beyond the context for sure, and lots of food for thought. Um, what surprised you about this this journey of yours, this book of yours? What struck you? What sort of, uh, I, I don't want to limit your, your your range of motion in the question, but what comes to mind is something along the lines of, you know, um, did you expect to end up here? Was this completely kind of, um, the, the, were, the, were the geographies, you know, uh, surprised? Like what struck you about this research? So
0: um, one thing that struck me, I mean, the, the thing about food, uh, when I was writing the dissertation, I mean, I kind of noticed that food kept kind of coming up in the stories. But it wasn't really until the dissertation defense that uh, one of um, one of the, the people on the committee pointed out and said, "You know, food is all over this," and like it is. I really should have paid a little more attention to it. And so that actually signaled to me that uh, that was a, you know one of the directions for the book. Um, but that I guess surprised me in a way, and. Uh, in the process of just doing more research about uh, and thinking about food, I don't know I, I guess the thing that surprised me the most is that I just start now seeing food everywhere um, and interactions with food i, I yeah, now I probably overthink everything because I'm like super conscious of like if somebody's offering me some food, it's like well, I should probably accept it because this is potentially also a, a, a trying to establish a social relationship and not just uh, you know asking if I'm hungry or not. And so, yeah, now
1: I probably think too much about food. Um, but uh, John, yeah. um, I see food every food everywhere as well, and I think too much about food. But it's not Raj, the scholar, I'm referring <laughs> <to> it, anyhow. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so please continue was there anything else that struck you about your findings Oh
0: I just and I know this is a little off topic but I can't help but bring it in um as I'm teaching uh, you know my religion 101 class and things at, at Michigan State sometimes I'm like looking for comics or things to to bring in to sort of lighten the mood and there was one uh, particular cartoon that I'd found about uh, Meditation, Buddhist meditation. Or, you know, two characters sitting there on cushions, and one says, "You know, I find this meditation thing so hard. How can you possibly like think and uh, you know sit here quietly and think about one thing all the time?" And the speech bubble around the other character is like, "Dinner, dinner, 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 dinner." And so, yeah,
1: people are thinking that's about great. food a lot. Anyway,
0: um, yeah, I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs>
1: Oh, that's it's a, it's a scenic route, right? It's a scenic route. We, I just wanted to know if there was more you wanted to say about what struck you about this research or, or the data or the findings, aside from the theme of food at large, was there something specifically that surprised you? Um, that's a good question. I'm,
0: I guess I'm a little surprised at how the book ended up, because I could not have predicted that even when I was writing the dissertation. The book is a really rather different project than the dissertation was. And um, I remember that in some years, because it's been some years since the dissertation, I, I remember feeling some anxiety at different points that this was maybe taking a little too long. And uh, one of my my mentors uh, said that uh, she had very much appreciated taking some time after her dissertation because the book that she ended up with, she was then very satisfied with. And um, that was very reassuring. And that ended up actually being true. I, I really, I feel that i accomplished something that I could not have done uh, earlier in my scholarly career, allowing this sort of time to unfold and it allowing it to sort of what digest or gestate or how whatever, whatever illustration we want to use here, um, it was a good thing. So, yeah, that, I don't know if that really addressed your question as such, but it is something that that did strike me strongly. Um, the way that uh, spending this time thinking about hagiography as well, I, I talked in the book in one chapter about uh, hagiography in four D, um, looking at how hagiography changes through time, and looking at instances of stories as frames uh, from a film rather than as snapshots, and that we need to watch how the frame changes as it gets, you know, as the story gets repeated over time. That helps us understand the the contour, the life of the story that's something that um, only dwelling with those stories for a while, right. that, that allowed that idea to, to sort of come up and become very conscious as I watched the stories move you know from, from texts to plays, to films, back to texts and things. And, and Christian Oveksi has also worked on this, right? So it's not a totally novel idea, but just then the, the life of the story,
1: the fluid, dynamic nature story. Mm-hmm. If you would be so kind as to crystallize that insight and put it in a pill, and administer that pill to everyone who reads or studies the Puranas, I'd be much indebted to you. Um, there, there, there. Um, I was telling. Uh, uh, I often whether or not i whether or not the, the subject of the lecture is the Puranas when teaching Hinduism. Um, Mostly at the OCHS and at my online school these days. Where else? Yeah, it's pretty much it. Sometimes the odd public talk. I will incorporate within the lecture or start off with a, a tale from the Puranas. It's you know, when it's when it's, uh, when it's uh, a lecture pertaining to narrative in some way or product narratives. Um, uh, much more so. I uh, <laughs> we started this series at the OCHS. Uh, uh, I suggested we have some live Zoom time for everybody, so they're called uh, "Understanding Hinduism." And once a week, either me or Nick Sutton will hop on a Zoom call, and you know, um, um, uh, he'll share teaching from the Gita, and then talk about the implications for for um, the greater Hindu landscape. I'll do the same, but my MO is to share a snippet from the Puranas. I, I told uh, the story of why Ganesha's is first among the gods. And in the beginning of the story, I framed it as, you know, the Vedic priests had a question. So they did a they did a fire sacrifice to ask this question. And then at some point in the Q&A, someone asked me, well, in which text is that frame? I said, that's, that's, I don't know if that's from any of the Puranic corpus. That's the way I tell the story, right? And there was, they were like, how could you, how could you, you know, you know, how could you change the story? I said, well, if the story is told five ways from five shastras, which four shastras are lying to you? Uh, you know, uh, I, said, I said, look, the text is on the tongue. This is a living tradition, right? That's the, it's, a, it's a very different situation if you're quoting from the Mark and they put on it to make sense thereof or whatever critical edition of it. Um, but this is something that's difficult to convey. Where is it? Where is the text? Where is it? It's a living tradition. The morphing of the text is the life of the text, right? And I just have to say that you, um, you landed at that looking at very different data. So um, either we're both nuts or there's something to it. Well,
0: I think, no, I, I think that um, this is to a large extent we could apply this to religion generally. I mean, people live within stories. They, they tell stories about where they are in the world. And because they're religious traditions, they tend to have a little bit more than like, they have super mundane levels of meaning or significance. But I think that's in one of the strong parts of religious traditions. We're always enmeshing ourselves in the, the stories that we, you know, we tell about the past or religious people are doing that. And um, yeah, there's, I think that connects to a sort of a, a level of memory and emotion that in many ways, I think, I don't want to say necessarily is deeper than a cognitive or intellectual understanding, but is at least as compelling. I think you know, um, modern politics, we, we probably don't want to go there in our, our it, podcast, it, but uh, it has a it, lot it, to do
1: with it too. Sure, it's not. If it's um, the storytelling Mind or brain for me is more primordial, right? It's something that we can all access. Access, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, the computational mind is something that some of us are better with than others, but in either case, chances are the computational mind, even among the most well-intentioned and, and, and most critically thinking, is deeply implicated in the storytelling mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm currently doing this. Um, uh, what what is it? Oh, uh, planetary myths, like the myths of the grahas. Mm-hmm. And there's this profound insight embedded in uh, Buddha, Buddha's Mercury. Yep. So he represents, you know, our, our computational mind, mm-hmm. yeah? our critical thinking, uh, our discernment, uh, on a good day, our, our capacity for wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Buddha is a spawn of Chandra, the moon, mm-hmm. the moon god. Chandra represents, literally, the Shasta say, Chandra represents the manas, the emotions, food, the mother. So... The, therein is this sort of um, 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 uh, theory or perhaps even fact about the human complex that you know, Buddha is a, a spawn of the moon. You know, our, our intellectual faculty is rooted in and dependent upon our values, our beliefs, and the stories we tell. And if someone can tell a good story for an audience, I mean we know what happens when they're successful. It doesn't matter how rooted in facts it is. Mm-hmm. If you're able to access someone's storytelling mind or a population storytelling mind, then you can be extraordinarily effective in, in moving people.
0: Right. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons too so, then like with hagiography, this is sometimes by some scholars viewed as sort of like you know lots of uh, fantastic tales about saints and gods and whatnot, um, but they're, they're stories. and. These are not just simple sort of idle past, you know, time past things. These, A lot of these were probably having a very serious effect on people. And with bhakti traditions, at least many of them reaching out to the large populations that they were, many of which, not, you know, many members of, of whom were not necessarily coming from the elite educated classes, this was one way of, of communicating and I think
1: probably very powerful ways. Without question. Um, I was doing a, uh, what was I doing? I'm so foggy today. My apologies. I I need more coffee, I think. Um, uh, I was speaking with Brian Collins yesterday on the Life Wisdom podcast. It'll probably be cross-posted to this podcast because we're talking about um, myth. Mm -hmm. And I was saying to him, like, myth is this, you know, dirty four-letter word. And when I say myth versus history or itihasa, I don't mean to denigrate. The, the the narrative, I mean, to exalt mythology to its rightful place as extraordinarily powerful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in every crevice of creation. And these stories uh, move people, uh, inform them, entertain them, inspire them.
0: And just like um, people like Bruce Lincoln and other people who've looked at myth, then too, they also embed very strong ideas, uh, ideological arguments in ways that some people want the, the world to look, which I think also comes across in hagiographical stories. Uh, at least that that certainly showed up in the, in the renditions of the stories that I saw repeated about Hiknath. They definitely wanted to be moving people in one direction or another, and the, the story was a, a very strong way to do
1: this. Well, without question, um, narratives, um, especially religious narratives, they they posit or advance a worldview, you know, values, beliefs, a way of seeing. That's, that's, uh, it's much more effective. Why do we tell children stories? <laughs> Whether or not we say the moral of the story is, either way, there's a moral of the story that they'll pick up one way or another. Um, we have uh, strayed into the, <laughs> the scenic path, but I imagine the listeners will enjoy that. Um, we can, we can is hope for things you want to share.
0: Speed on ahead and
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about the electronic uh, the luxury of, of, of Yes, they have the luxury of clicking ahead. Um, now from what I understand, folks do really enjoy uh, real lived conversations because you know um, people can read the book, people can read blog posts, but having that sense of the author and, and the sense of the publication is quite useful. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on uh, pertaining to your book? Well, let's see.
0: I don't, coming just off the top of my head here, I think we've covered actually a, a good deal of it. Uh, I, yeah, uh, I think that that's uh, touched on most of the major points. Um, one thing I guess I could maybe say at the end here is that I did try to write the book in a way that would be accessible to a fairly large audience. And of course there's, you know, scholars of, um, you know, South Asia, especially Maharashtra, who I think would be interested because in, it, it does, you know, move into some new territory there. Bhakti studies, think, that also can be. I'm uh, making something of a new, maybe a new perspective or a new argument, um, and obviously, graduate students the, that there's that. But uh, I really did make a point of trying to write in a way that was also going to be accessible to undergraduates, um, and so I was uh, sharing chapters and giving talks to undergraduates as I was writing this. And even after I had a full draft, I, sh- I actually hired uh, an an astute undergraduate to, from one of my former classes. And she read the entire manuscript and offered feedback. And she's not a South Asian specialist. So, I was just trying to make sure that I was writing it in a way that could come across fairly easily. And it wouldn't be like an, uh, yeah, a, a very uh, exclusive kind of text. And you know, for me, kind of, well, it's accessible. I hope so. I hope so. Coming from the background that I do, it, um, it is. Yeah.
1: It is accessible. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is accessible, and something that uh, I personally appreciate in terms of what I feel is the most useful f- approach for scholars, such that um, it, it just widens the reach of people who can partake in the conversation or, at very least, um, learn from their labor. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, right. Fantastic. So, for those of you listening, um, um, we've been talking about shared devotion, shared food, equality in the bhakti caste question in Western India. Brand new Oxford University Press publication, authored by um, John Coyne, who is uh, assistant professor of religious studies at Michigan State University. John, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. As did I. For those of you listening, uh, keep listening, keep reading. Please stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating food and what it means in your life. Take care.